it's probably three or four o'clock in the morning. Uh, this woman calls and said, there's this guy that's, he's been knocking on my door for the past like 10 minutes. And he walks back over to his car that's in the driveway and he pulls out the bag. Then she starts screaming. He's setting my house on fire. There was a, an RV park downtown on second Avenue and it had a, a message playing saying that it was going to blow up. Oh, and it just blew up. When I got hired on, I was 20 years old and, um, I had a call from a woman who, uh, she had just got free from, uh, somebody had taped her up and, uh, her after they broke into her house. And it was, uh, I mean, it was an apartment, but, and it was really close by where I worked at. Uh, she was a student at one of the universities. And, you know, like after that happened, it was, there was a lot that went on. She couldn't manage to free herself. Um, afterwards she was held at knife point, um, apparently repeatedly. Uh, and then he, the suspect stole her credit cards and, uh, kind of left from, from there and left her tied up or taped up, I guess is a better way to put it. But she managed to get free when she called us. Uh, she gave a description of the guy. Uh, once the police got out there, they actually got a good description of the, the guy and everything and got her credit card information. And they actually found him trying to take some of her money out at ATM about two or three miles away. I so they, they called I, him. That was really good, quick work. I was going to say, do you do you ever find out what happens to these, t- you know, I would assume actually, you don't. Like, Yeah, yeah. most of the time we don't. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that... Um, you know, and, and actually with that incident there, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was brand new and I was like, I, I feel like I want to go and, you know, help. I want to do something more, you, you know, and my trainer that was sitting next to me, like, no, this was your part. You did your job. And that, that was, that's all you're needed. Your part of it's over with. So it's, it was kind of hard to hear at first. Cause I, you know, I've never experienced something like that on, on the phone before, or, you know, really at all. So right. it was kind of shocking for me, but you know, the calls continued that month and I got a, a few more that, you know, were pretty screwed up. So, uh, like the first month, that's uh, another one that I've uh, told people about. This is, it's pretty nuts the way it happened. Um, I was working, this was midnight shift. Like the, my first month, it was, they usually start you out on midnight shift because they want it to be slow for you and have time between calls. It's not really that busy, but th- that's a good part about being trained on that shift. The bad part about it is the calls you get, they're real. They're not, they're not any of these, you know, BS type calls where people are calling in because they want, you know, extra sauce on their, their chicken sandwich or something like that, which that does happen. Um, but like this one is probably three or four o'clock in the morning. Uh, this woman calls and said, there's this guy that says he's been knocking on my door for the past like 10 minutes. And, uh, you know, it's like, as she said, I can't really see who he is. You know, it's dark outside and I'm, I'm afraid to, to answer the door. So I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. You know, I'll send the police out and they start on the way and she, and I keep her on the phone. The guy stops and he walks back over to his car that's in the driveway and he pulls out this, this bag and he starts walking around her house. And when he's, he's doing, he was knocking, he was knocking to see if anybody was even home, but he doesn't see anybody home now. Yeah. I, I think that's probably what his plan was. But you know, when he starts doing this, she's quiet. She's like, I don't know what he's doing. He's just walking around the house. And then he, walks back to his car, drops the bag off and then walks back to the the front of the house. And then she starts screaming. He's setting my house on fire, like just over and over again. And she's trying to do so where she remains quiet, but you can tell that she's obviously, you know, frightened at this point. And at that point, me as a dispatcher, I don't know what to do. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can leave her inside of a burning house or send her outside where this guy might be wanting to, you know, hurt or kill her. 
Right. Luckily, he ran and jumped in his car and drove away, and I managed to tell her to get out of the house right then. And, you know, when she did that, she went outside and she saw his car. She's like, I know exactly who that was. And apparently she had a workplace dispute with some guy, and the guy got fired over it, and he thought it was enough to go and burn her house down, maybe even kill her while she's sleeping or something. I don't know. So what, the cops show up? Yeah, the cops showed up, and... Uh, like, took a statement from her. I don't know what happened to the guy after that. I would hope that he got arrested, but that's one of those things where we don't find out a lot. I mean, by the time they got everything wrapped up, uh, I think that there was a report taken and I don't know if they went and actually found the guy and arrested him or anything like that, but I'm you sure know, that they, they put out the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Fire department. Oh. They, they were sent. So, um, from what I could tell, it was probably something that he'd, Essentially, the thing that was in uh, his bag that he had, he had gasoline, and he was just dousing the house as he walked around it with gasoline, and um, you know it's it set it on fire. One good thing about uh, gasoline when it sets on fire like that, it flames up, it gets really hot really quick, but it doesn't usually stick that long. So I think the damage to her house was actually kind of minimal. You take so many of these calls, and you're it's just so routine to you. You could take a murder or suicide or something like that, and it's not that that big of a thing. You just go on to the next call. I mean, it's, um, it's when you get like a really, really bad call or something like that. Sometimes they'll stick to you. Um, like the, uh, I'd mentioned the suicide calls. Uh, one of the things that really kind of gets you on those is the, the fact that, you know, if somebody calls in and says, I'm a, uh, I'm suicidal. Um, I think I might want to kill myself. You know, they're most of the time when they say stuff like that, they're wanting some help. They, right. they don't want to actually kill themselves. They may think they do, but they're not actually going to do it most of the time. Uh, that's it, it's just not something that's happening. They're, they want to go to a hospital. They want to get some medicine. They want to get some sort of you know mental health treatment or something like that. But the people who call in and they say something like, you know, my name is this. I'm at this location. I'm going to kill myself. You can find me, you know, here. When they call in and they say something like that, almost every single time they kill themselves or they, they at least attempt to. So I've, I've had a call where a woman did exactly that. She said, my name is so-and-so I live this address and, um, I'm about to kill myself. You know, please tell my family, I'm sorry. And then she lays the phone down and then you hear a gunshot Mm -hmm. and, you know, something like that. Or one of the other ones that was actually pretty bad too, that, um, I've talked about before and people were just like, Oh, I can't understand why anybody would do this. The guy said the exact same type of thing. I live this, this place. I'm going to kill myself. You can find me at the bottom of the pool. And then the phone, the phone, you know, puts the phone down and then you hear a splash in the background and they got out to that one. And apparently the guy tied on some brick blocks to his ankles and threw him in and he jumped in afterwards. So he, he drowned himself, which is a horrible way to die. I was going to say a horrible way to, to die. Yeah. yeah. Most people don't know that you, once you actually do that, you know, he's down there and if he has a second thought, if he can't get himself out, he's holding his breath most likely. And, when you pass out from holding your breath, you immediately start breathing again. Right. So, you know, it, the, his first breath he got back in was all water and it's a deep inhale when you do that. So, yeah, I mean, we got out there, but by that time he had already uh, passed away. There was no helping him. Yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's funny, like gunshot wounds. I, or when people kill themselves with a, a gun, it, you know, you see it in the movie, they stick the, they stick the, the gun to their head and boom. And it's a, Listen, it don't always work out like that. Like I, I, you know, a lot of times people will put the gun here and then they'll fire the gun. Well, the gun goes up there and it shoots out there. doesn't kill them, you know, or I had a, a buddy whose father 
went to commit suicide and he stuck the gun to his temple and fired and the bullet went through his through his eye cavities right like through that so now he's blind and he's laying on the ground passes out wakes up and then has to search around to find the gun to shoot himself again yeah um i had a similar one uh to that it actually it went on this guy he calls and i could barely understand what he's saying when he first called he uh apparently put a gun into his mouth and he pulled the trigger but when he did it he kind of did it sideways so it blew the side of his face off and uh like part of his jaw was missing it was and he was when he was talking he was gurgling blood it was you know really bad and um we got out there we pick him up we start transporting him uh we just had a, a brand new hospital open up in nashville when this happened and luckily it was like before this happened the closest hospital would have been probably twice as far away so they got him in the ambulance and i guess midway there they're traveling on interstate highway speeds probably 80 85 miles an hour if not faster than that he decides still he doesn't want to live and he gets up and he jumps out of the back of the ambulance. And at that point, three cars run over him at highway speed. What's messed up is once they, they turned around and got back to him, he was still alive. So even with all that, he shot himself, jumped out of an ambulance, moving that fast and then run over by three cars and he was still alive. I don't know if he lived much longer, but when they picked him back up, he was still alive. A buddy of mine who was working the radio up front, he stood up and looked back at me and, Gave me a thumbs up. He's like, he's got a pulse. I mean, if you didn't want to kill yourself before, yeah, blow your half your face off and get run over by two, two or two, couple of cars. Like, I mean, yeah. And, uh, that's, I think I saw a comedian one time that, that kind of, uh, pointed that out. He's like, yeah, I just, I went and I jumped in front of a, a bus and, you know, trying to kill myself. And now I just got this really bad limp or, you know, <laughs> shot myself in the head. And now I got this ringing in my ear. What were, uh, what were some other ones that were, Int- or <laughs> I hate to say interesting, bro. Yeah, I, I know it's it's kind of a hard thing to to you know say like interesting. Uh, like one of the active shooters that I had, uh, this was at a, a church a few years ago, and I actually tried to get the nine one one calls from this, and um, I didn't take one of the nine one one calls. I was actually working on a fire dispatch radio for this one, so I was helping to dispatch out the ambulances and stuff. And this guy, he, he walked into a, a church during the service and started shooting up, and um, you know, we got a lot of calls from it, uh, from people inside the church and people from across the street hearing the gunshots inside. And, um, one of the most notable calls that we got was, uh, it was a woman who called in. She just kept repeating. She couldn't say anything at all. We got the GPS from her cell phone. Uh, so we knew she was inside the church, but she was so like nearly catatonic, but all she could say over and over again was shotgun, shotgun, shotgun. She couldn't tell us the description of the guy where he was in the church what the address was, nothing. She just kept repeating that over and over again. So, and that, that kind of shows you sometimes when you get the, the calls like that, where people just, they're hysterical and they're so hysterical, you can't control what they're doing at all. You know, there's uh, most people, if they're a little bit excited, you can try to calm them down a little bit, but some people are too far gone and you can't do that. Uh, what happened with that one? Uh, they ended up getting out there. Um, they arrested the guy, but one of the, um, one of the parishioners there at the church uh, actually um, managed to fight with the guy, pulled the gun from him, like actually got the gun and shot him. And, uh, you know, he was still alive when they got out there and they, you know, he went to trial and uh, he's in prison now. So uh, I'm trying to remember how many, I think there was like one person was uh, killed. And then I think he shot four or five others while he was inside the church. But, you know, he 
I don't think as far as if he was wanting to go in there and, and kill as many people as possible, it's, uh, I think he probably had a better opportunity or maybe didn't plan it out the way, but I'm, I'm glad regardless that only that many people got shot. Cause it could have been a whole lot worse than it was. Well, have you ever had anybody, you know, call up that had killed, has killed somebody like, yeah, hey, the, just killed my uh, whatever. Yeah. A few times. I mean, that's, uh, it's pretty rare to have something like that, but, and, and most of those you think, oh, those are probably the most exciting calls. They're really not because you, you talk to them on the phone and you just have to keep them on the phone while they're, while the police are on the way out that, that way, you just sort of ask them, you know, what they did, how they do it or whatever. And, uh, you just try to keep them talking. And most of the time they're at that point, not, not always, but, uh, some of the times they'll be just really regretful for what they've done and everything. Like they didn't really think it through all the way. And you know, they're not wanting to, they're, they're just really regretting what they did, you know, and they're, they're hoping that, uh, they can take it all back. But I mean, at that point, obviously there's not, not anything you can do about it. So, so um, you're, you're talking about like, are you thinking of a specific one where like, yeah, I mean, uh, some people will call in and they'll, they'll be, um, well, as, as far as a specific one of a uh, couple over the years, one guy called in and said that he, um, you know, he'd beat up his wife, but beat her to death. And, um, Ooh. you know, he didn't think she was breathing anymore. Uh, it was, you know, the, the way he was describing it was kind of vague. And that's, that's one of the things you, you think about like, that's okay. Well, what happened, you know? And, uh, but apparently he just, he beat her. I'm not even sure if he, he may have had a weapon. I don't know. Uh, it's another one of those that I didn't pay attention to after I left from work and never found out the details about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, you just talk to him, you get his address and you ask him what's going through his head and, He's just like, oh, we've had problems for a long time. And, you know, it's most of the time something like that's influenced heavily by drinking and or drugs. And then sometimes sometimes like a mental health issue. And that's really the the more rough part about it is that you get somebody that's that far gone and drugs or alcohol. I mean, they're making horrible decisions and they're they're not even really aware of it. Do you have any 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 comical ones? Yeah, uh, I got a, uh, quite a few of those. Uh, so first off, or I guess you allow um, bad language on the show, right? Yeah. No. Okay. All right. So uh, this one is one. Is that it's actually not my um, my call, right? That I took, but it was a buddy of mine's call. He, uh, this guy, he was a dispatcher for forty years, and he's hilarious by himself. But he took this call really early on when I just started, and it was a guy calling in saying his his house is on fire and you know, the first thing you get is the address or something like that. That's they honed into, you. you've got to get the address, got to get the address. Um, so he's, he's trying to get the address and the guy goes, uh, I'm on 17th Avenue North. He goes, yeah, but what's the address? He goes 17th Avenue North. He says, no, no, I need an exact address. What's the actual numerical on the address. And he says, look, just have the fire department drive up 17th Avenue. I guarantee you I'm the only motherfucker whose house is on fire right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that one. And, um, let's see that I actually, this is, um, I was just at crime con where I actually met you at there kind of briefly. I had a right. speaking session there and I, I talked about this one, uh, too, that, and this is feel really actually, you know, really bad for the guy. It's just the way that it was kind of played out. It was, it was really funny. Um, this guy called in and he, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad way, man. I, I need an ambulance. I was like, okay, what's going on with you? And I got his address, all that kind of stuff. And when, um, he starts telling me about it, he says like, yeah, I'm just, 
feeling real bad. I've been, I've been sick for three or four days and, you know, I, I just, I can't even move now and I've been throwing up and you know, I've been pooping and he's like, I can't stop pooping. And I was like, okay. He goes, yeah, no, I, every time I cough, I poop. <laughs> and then he starts coughing. So that's, you know, and that was one that I really had most of the time. If I get something that's funny on the phone, I'm able to just kind of wave it off. I, I keep my, keep a straight face. I almost laughed at that one just because I wasn't expecting that at all. It, it was really, really bad. But, you know, like I said, somebody like that, they're in genuine need. I feel bad for even thinking about laughing, but it's, you know, it is what it is. As some of the things I was uh, talking about earlier on with the, uh, the people calling in for just really stupid stuff. I mean, you've got people who call in because they get one too few chicken nuggets in their, their combo meal at McDonald's or something. They'll, you know, leave and they'll see that they have nine chicken nuggets instead of 10 and they'll call the police once they can't get the manager or whoever there to give them an extra one or give them their meal for free. And, you know, that I, at first I sort of laughed at those two, but after you start getting them, I'm, I'm not joking. Once a week, I get a call like that. And you, you think about it, like if we've got 25 people working on a shift, you know, half of those people are answering phones and we're taking one of those per day and it doesn't matter what shift you're on. So uh, we're probably taking as a center, hundreds of those calls every single week. It's, it's pretty insane. Um, what do you tell them? Well, in most places, Nashville is one of them. Like we, I tell them just straight up, that's something that we, the police can't handle. Um, you know, you have to work it out with the manager there. If you can't get something like that worked out with the manager, you can go up, you can go to their district manager or even contact, try to contact the owner or CEO of whatever restaurant you have. And, you know, but if they start getting violent or, you know, say the, the employee calls in or something like that and say, they, they, they won't leave, you know, we'll send somebody out and they'll, they'll get them to move along, but there's nothing they can do about it. Um, but one of the uh, funny parts about it too, though, somebody will call in about this stuff and, you know, they, they won't think about it. They'll have a warrant. And they'll, when they get out there, they'll check them for a warrant. They'll take them to jail. So, you know, those, we get the dumbasses calling in too. So, uh, people calling in and they have previous criminal histories and they have a warrant sitting there for, you know, something like a probation violation or worse. And they get picked up because they wanted to complain about a freaking chicken nugget. Yeah. I mean, do they, do, do you not explain to them? Like what you, you don't say like, what, what are you doing? You don't call nine one one for this. Oh what yeah. 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 We'll do that too, but uh, that, you know, they'll, they'll, has it they'll escalated care. by that point? Like it's yeah, yeah they they don't care. I mean, uh, you'd be surprised that that probably only about ten percent of all calls that come in on nine one one are actually real life threatening threatening emergencies. And um, you know, the the rest of the calls we get, you know, you've probably heard of the butt dials and stuff like that, where people's phones will be in their pocket or something like that, right? You or know, some little kid. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's another thing too that. People don't know that, uh, like a disconnected cell phone. So if you've got an old phone that you just got in your desk or something like that, or you let a kid play with an old phone, those they can still call nine one one even though they're not they're not hooked up to a service. How does that work? Yeah, what they're connected to. It just it latches on to a you know whatever nearby tower there is, and that's all it is. But it, it works the same way with home phones. If you walk into a house that is vacant and they've still got like it's still connected to the pole and it it's running into the house, if they still got an old phone that's connected to the wall, you pick up and dial nine one one, it'll still go through. 
And how do you know when, when someone calls, what if they don't know their, their address? I'll kind of go through a, a few different things with, uh, you know, I'll ask them if they've got a piece of mail or something like that, they can look at, or, you know, ask somebody that's there. Uh, luckily the GPS technology we got now for the cell phones, they've got a lot better. Uh, when they, when I first started, hardly anybody even had cell phones back then. It was uh, 2000. There was, you know, maybe, uh, I think I read sometime, some time ago that it was like eight or 9 million people in America had cell phones back then. And, you know, if you do the the numbers, that's like, I don't know, maybe one in 75 million or 75 or so. So right. really hardly anybody had a cell phone. So if you had a wreck or something like three o'clock in the morning and you know, you're going to work, you didn't have a cell phone. You actually had to walk to somebody's house, knock on the door and say, Hey, can I use your phone? I got to call nine one one. Um, but as far as now GPS, we can get within a few feet of where they are. So if they're inside of a house, we can usually pinpoint where they are. So, um, but most of the time the people are cognizant enough, they can actually tell us what the address is and stuff. So like here, here recently, like the, the Christmas day bombing that we had, it was in 2020. That was one of the, the bigger calls that I'd had anything to do with. And I was actually working on police radio that day, but the way it happened, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the bombing. No. Yeah. It, um, you know, Christmas day for a dispatcher, it's like one of the slowest days of the year. There's nothing going on. Everybody's sleeping in, um, mm. you know, there there's everybody's with their families. Nothing really happens. Uh, barely anybody's on the road. So there's hardly any wrecks or anything. And in Nashville, it's the same way, especially now that most people in Nashville, they live somewhere else. They're from somewhere else. So they, they leave the city and they go back to whatever their hometown is and visit family. But that morning we got called, we started getting calls. I think it was like two or three o'clock in the morning. It was before my shift happened. And the calls that people were calling in was that there was a, an RV park downtown on second Avenue. And it had a, a message playing saying that it was going to blow up and it had kind of a timer kind of countdown thing going every 15 minutes. It will say this will, you know, it's going to blow up in so so and so many minutes. And when that actually got down to the last five minutes, I mean, in between all this, it was playing like songs that, uh, old 60 song called downtown. I, I can't remember who it is that, uh, played that, but, uh, it played that on a loop. And, you know, at six 30, that's when I walked in, that's when my shift starts. I walk in everybody's up standing around and kind of moving about, which usually on a Christmas, everybody's just kicked back and chilled. There's nothing going on. I was like, I asked the guy I'm relieving. I said, what's, what's going on here? What's, why is everybody up? And he says, oh, there's an RV downtown and he's playing this message over and over again, saying it's going to blow up. And then he goes, oh, and it just blew up. And I was like, all right, just hop up. Let me take over and see what happens. And, um, turns out the guy, like I, I did a couple episodes on that. Uh, it was pretty bad. It, it blew up a couple of buildings completely demolished a whole bunch of others, but luckily he was the only one that died. He actually kind of did that. I think by design, he was inside the RV. He may have killed himself beforehand, but the entire thing was it blown to shreds. So they couldn't find out if he shot himself or if he was just blown up like that, but he was actually, um, kind of a conspiracy theorist type person. Uh, he worked at one point in some capacity for AT&T and he had a thing out for them and he parked right in front of one of their main junction buildings. And when he did that, it blew up that portion of the building and it knocked pretty much all the AT&T service out for a lot of the Southeastern states for, uh, I mean, it was a few days before they got everything back up. 
so this is like a Timothy McVeigh. He he must have had he put together his own mix and had it in the RV just in a drums or something. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that they ever determined exactly what type it was, but uh, you know they've they've went back and and looked. It turned out that his his girlfriend at the time, uh, well, previous to that, I guess it was. She actually called and and said, "Hey, you know, he's making a bomb out there." And apparently, police went by the house. Nobody was answering, and it's they're kind of limited in what they can do. They can go out there and knock on the door, try to talk to somebody, because anybody can call in and say, you know, hey, there's a dude over here with a gun, and it right. could just be some Joe Schmo walking down the street, and just some rando trying to get him in trouble. Right. So they kind of did that, and they they didn't talk to anybody. They didn't see anything out of the ordinary. So at that point, they had very little they could do as far as doing any searches or anything. Um, I think they tried to follow up with, with the same kind of results. So, uh, there was not too much they could do at that point. So it's, uh, and he, he wasn't one that was on anybody's radar. I think they said that he had one previous conviction, uh, conviction from like the seventies or something like that, where he got, uh, arrested for like marijuana possession or something. It was like nothing at all. So it, it wasn't like he was some sort of a career criminal or anything, but right. he was crazy. They started looking into his past and. He believed that, that uh, there was like a race of like alien reptiles or something like that, that, you know, walked among us and he would go out to uh, like these state parks and just stay out there with all this camera equipment. And, you know, he's like, they, they live out here in these parks and oh, they do. And once they, he gets out there with the camera equipment, he starts trying to film these creatures that were there. And then he's like, oh, they've got cloaking devices, so I can't see them on camera. So, you know, any little thing to kind of mess him up with his own theories he had in his head. And I think he was one of those five G conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theorists too, where he believed that the five G networks were eating our brains and such. So. And he worked for AT&T at one point. Yeah. So. He did like private security and stuff like that. Like he, he apparently was really good with, uh, uh, when I say private security, like, um, computer type, you know, um, security, uh, right. He was, he had a, a shop where he worked on computers and stuff. And, you know, he, he was, he seemed like he was a smart guy overall, but he just wasn't all there. Well, I mean, look at the Unabomber, like the guys, you know, he's brilliant, but. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. With well, something like that, you, I don't know if it's uh, one of those things where if you reach a, a certain level of intelligence in, in your life, there's just kind of like a tipping point where everything's, <laughs> You know, it's a little bit too much for your brain to handle. I don't, I don't know, but uh, well, this guy, I guess it was, and he just he went over the top, and he did everything that he was planning on doing. So, and he, he was actually the message it was playing, saying over and over again, "This is going to blow up, evacuate the area." So it sounded like he was not trying to kill people; he was just trying to kill himself. And um, well, I mean, I wonder what was the bomb squad called? Yeah, they, um, they were notified that this was happening but we didn't have any knowledge at the time that there was an actual bomb there so um the the police went down the to the area they cleared out some of the area they were going door to door because a lot of downtown nashville it's you know bars and clubs and stuff like that right none of them were open at this time they were all closed everybody had gone home and the the few apartments that are there they're like lofts above the places so they managed to evacuate them uh some of the homeless people that were out on the street they got them out of the way. And, um, you know, what's, what's really messed up is the, the whole thing was caught, uh, on one of the body worn cameras, the officer that was there. It's, you know, it was pretty bad. Uh, he was 
walking back to his car that was like around the corner from where it happened at. And as he's getting into his, into his trunk for something, the whole thing blows up. It shatters windows out, like through buildings that he was next to. Like as he's walking, everything's normal. When he turns around, there's debris everywhere and there's still stuff falling down. And it was just chaos for a long time. Some of the other bigger calls that I've taken, like the, for instance, the, uh, the, floods that we happened and that we had in 2010 like that's not really a, a crime type thing but it's something 911 dispatchers have to do right and it was kind of unprecedented for what happened i was actually when it first happened uh, i was actually in south carolina at my cousin's wedding and i saw i started seeing on the news i was like oh i gotta turn around and go back home and luckily the wedding had already happened but nashville got like it was i think it was like 13 and a half inches of rain in two days and it, like it the downtown area completely flooded uh surrounding areas anywhere close by the the main river the cumberland river in nashville it was completely flooded and you know most people they they got out and stuff but there were a few people that had to be rescued they climbed on top of their roof the roof of their house and we had to fly in helicopters or take boats over to pick them up some of them were stuck in their attic for hours before they can get out um and what's what's really screwed up is it's not like the um you know, that itself is, there's no crime involved in a flood, obviously, but the aftermath of it, so many looters. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at the type of people that just go out and, you know, they see an abandoned house, they're going to run inside it and steal as much as they can from it and run back out with it. And that, that was a huge problem. It's all over. Yeah. What do you, what do you get for stuff like that? Anyway, it's not like anybody's keeping cash or jewelry or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, everybody's got money in the bank they've got even if you grab if you somebody walked up and tried to get your wallet what how much cash have you got on you you know almost yeah. never have cash yeah nobody has cash anymore so it's yeah, yeah the yeah robberies that i mean that's that's a good one and um you know robberies in general they're not happening as much anymore uh right. they, they still do like from from a person anyway so um you know you have like now the big things carjackings so you'll go up and have somebody just bump you from behind in a car and they'll run up with a gun and, you know, cause you'll think, okay, it's just a little accident or something like that. Pull yeah, you want to swap insurance. Exactly. And then the guy, you know, runs up, you know, there's two or three people in the car behind you. They'll come up, pull you out of the car, throw you out. Like it's, you know, GTA five or something like that. And they drive off in your car. And the whole reason it's not for, for keeping your car. It's cause they're going to use the car to go and, do other crimes, drive-bys, robberies, you know, whatever like that. And that's one of the big things happen. It, it happens quite a bit in Nashville. And most of the time it's juveniles that are doing that. It's like, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old kids that are out there doing these like carjackings and then going around and shooting somebody with that car and then they'll dump the car, you know? And actually, um, uh, yeah. got a story about that too. I actually had, um, uh, this was, it was like last year, I guess it was. It's kind of hard to like put them all together, but I actually had somebody, uh, I took little bits of every piece of this call. The first call I got was a woman who had just been carjacked. She was, it's a little area of town, just barely outside of downtown. Somebody did just that. They uh, ran up to her at a stoplight, took her out of her vehicle. It was a, I think she had like a Dodge Charger, Challenger, one of those, and threw her on the ground, held her at gunpoint, and, you know, and then they just drove off in the car. So I got all the information about that, um, sent it up, and I actually talked to her, the person that actually got robbed. And then a few minutes later, uh, well, I, I say a few minutes, probably a couple hours after that, now I'm thinking about it, 
uh, I get a call, weird call from this dude. He's a, a locksmith and he's like, yeah, if, um, I've got these guys and they've, they've called me to, they want me to make a key for their car. And they, they said the car's running and everything like that. And then they just lost the key somewhere. They just need another key for it. And he's like, there's something wrong with it. I, I don't, I don't feel right about it. And he's like, you know, when I get over there, they're causing all kinds of uh, trouble. It seems like with each other kind of arguing and then I look in the back seat and there's a bunch of guns back there. And I just kind of pulled back off and I asked what kind of car it was. And I was like, and he told me and it matched the description. The people that were there matched the suspect description. So I got the police going out there and they believed that he, they were part of a kind of a bigger carjacking ring. And they ended up surrounding the entire place with SWAT. They had the helicopter kind of hovering out of the area ready to go that, that way, if they ran somewhere, like get them canine, the whole deal. Um, and then I went down and I actually, jumped on the radio where they had the kind of secret command going on where they were setting everything up and they ended up rushing in all at once. And, you know, a couple of them took off on foot, but they called all of them. And, uh, I, I don't know what they actually got charged with after that, but that was like, you know, several hours start to finish for, you know, pretty much a carjacking. Yeah. Well, I was going to say carjacking. That's a, that's a serious offense. You know what I'm saying? Like you'll oh, yeah. realize you get 20, 25 years for, yeah. And for card. we'll see that you, you think that, I mean, that's, that might be what they're sentenced, but you know, the, the way that, uh, the criminal justice system is working now, I took a guy, a, a call about a guy, the suspect I found out later on, like, uh, I was actually on a police radio when this happened, we get in a shooting and, you know, of course they go out there, it's chaos. Second, they get out there, everybody's screaming. Uh, and this was like in, um, in one of the projects in Nashville, which that's where a lot of the, the shootings and stuff like that happen. It's usually like, drug related or whatever. And we get out there and, um, the guy, um, they got shot, he was dead and they start putting out the suspect description and everything. And they got a name for the guy. Luckily, cause a lot of times, you know, the people that are there on the scene, they forget, uh, right. you know, what this person looked like because they're going to go and try to take revenge on note on that guy. And so, but luckily they did get somebody that said his name and stuff like that. And once they put that out, um, we ran the criminal history he just got out for homicide, but he only spent like two years in for like an, an actual homicide to this day. I have no idea how in the world he only did two years for killing somebody. Well, I mean, I, every state's different. So, you know, it's, it, you, you never know, like in Florida, you, if you, it's a carjacking in Florida, like you could, you can do some serious time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tennessee is usually pretty hard on stuff like that. Now, again, it, it might've been that he was just out for, I can't even think of a reason that he would be out for. I mean, no, that's, you know, I was thinking like, oh, he's out on bond or something. But no, he he was convicted and put in prison, but he only spent two years there. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I I I owned a bunch of houses next to J.C. Napier project. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You probably yeah, get some uh, calls there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm very familiar with that place. It's uh like that between uh, they, they call it J.C. and U.C. Uh, J.C. Napier and then uh, University Court. They're right next to each other. And those are probably the most dangerous, uh, housing projects in Nashville. And we get tons of calls there. It's like, you know, there's always drugs. There's always guns. There's always somebody shooting or stabbing somebody. I mean, it's, it's just, it's nuts there all the time. I mean, we've, and, uh, they had, they had something a, a while back, if you're familiar with the area. Um, so they've got uh, a dollar general that's right there. And there was something that happened down there. It was like, um, I can't even remember what it was. It was uh, like like a big fight or something like that. And then they ended up burning the place down. And that was like the 
their closest grocery store. It's like a, you know, walking distance where they can go in and get whatever they want. And they ended up burning the place down. So luckily they've rebuilt it and everything, but I was just thinking to myself, why would you do that? That's, you know, it's kind of asinine. I, I lived in, uh, um, well, I lived in JC Napier for a while too, but I also lived in uh, green Hills. Like, uh, <laughs> that's a stark contrast, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You go from, uh, the, you know, from one place to the, you know, green Hills zip code. That's a, a big jump. I mean, you go from government assistance and, uh, JC Napier over to green Hills where now you can't buy a house there for probably under $2 million. Yeah. I, I bought, I just bought up a bunch of property right around the, just around the projects in that yeah. general area and just renovated them and was pulling money out. And yeah, basically. now it's, they're trying to reform that whole area and, um, you know, just kind of like you were saying, the edge of that area that a lot of people are buying houses there and they're, uh, you know, redoing the inside. And sometimes they just do a complete tear down and, and build something new on the property. And, you know, there's still a bunch of crime in the general area, but now it's getting kind of more confined to just directly around the projects there. Yeah. I was going to say Germantown too. I remember Germantown, um, was on the other side of yeah. the city. Yeah, Germantown, they um like the uh so there's a Kroger there. I don't know if you remember that Kroger. Um one of the things we always talk about is the dispatch is if we know the address of the place, if we know it by heart, you don't want to go there because we get so many calls there. Right. And you know, that Kroger that's over that way, everybody knows the address because we get so many calls there about shoplifting and stuff like that. And you know, it's just there's always some sort of insanity. There's people that have just moved to Nashville and they've made a kind of a, a fake net, uh, map of Nashville where they have different areas and they call that the murder Kroger because people have been shot out in the parking lot and stuff. And, uh, just the other day I took a call from, um, we had like four or five calls from, uh, from this. It was just some people that were up by the front, uh, cash registers and they were, they got in an argument started fighting. Then they went to the back and started picking up wine bottles and try to start hit, hitting people with them. So, uh, no good reason. They just started a fight and I guess they wanted to escalate it by hitting each other with wine bottles that they just took from the shelves. It's just, it's so funny compared to, you know, when I was in Nashville compared to now, like just how much, um, stuff is out there. Like you would see it, you would see like insanity, like you would drive around there and people are, you know, there's, homeless people and people arguing and getting into fights on the street and everything. And, uh, I wonder what it's like now. Like, I wonder How if long it's ago was you were here 2006. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, it's changed uh, a whole lot since then. I mean, back then it was still like really dangerous, even the, the outside areas from it. So, um, but yeah, they're the housing projects, they're kind of, they're revamping them. They're trying to move them around some sometimes, uh, but they're still there. Uh, there was talk about them trying to move that one to a different part of town, like all the residents move them to a different part of town and kind of do a new area. They haven't jumped on that though. I wouldn't be surprised. They, you know, for a, a city aspect, it'd probably be a good reason to do that because all the property there, they could put up, you know, millions of dollars worth of houses there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of weird things where you have to kind of map out the, the, the good and the bad from it. Like those, the people who live actually in the projects, they, you know, a lot of them, most people think, Oh, everybody's drug users or whatever like that. No, some people just, they, they don't have education. They don't have good jobs. They, 
you know, don't have cars. They have to ride a bus everywhere. And, um, you know, they might work at that dollar general or something like that. And that's how they're making a living. So, um, you know, they want to stay closer to where they work at. And a lot of those people that live there, they might work in a restaurant downtown or something like that. So it's a close walk or a bike ride or something that they can right. do that. Do you remember what street you lived on? Uh, Donaldson. Okay. Yeah. Donaldson. Yeah. We own a property. We own some property on, is it Fairfax or Fairfield? Fairfield. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there was a, what was it? Um, it's like Green Street or? Yep. Green Street. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's on the other side. Uh, so like, yeah, Green Street kind of runs into, you know, the area runs into Hermitage Avenue, which is across the interstate. But, uh, you know, like you got Green Street and Little Green Street and back there in that corner of that, uh, that place is where a lot of those stolen cars get dumped at and set on fire. And, you know, you, you living around there, you probably saw a bunch of dumpster fires, didn't you? Um, no, I mean, not that I can recall, but then I, I only lived there. Like I only lived there maybe, maybe five or six months. Like, okay. you know, and I only lived in that area because I, we had bought up so much property in the yeah. area. So, you know, I could go out on my porch and I own the house next door. I own the, these three houses over there. I own four houses over there and we had two vacant lots over there. We were building new houses on. So, you know, I was buying up the whole neighborhood. So, yeah. Yeah. The um, dumpster fire thing is, uh, over in that area and a couple other, uh, housing projects, but specifically that one, anytime there's a, a dumpster fire that was lit, that's always when there was like a new shipment of drugs that came in. It was just a signal to everybody. If they saw the dumpster going up, they knew that they could go to their, their dealer and get some, some more stuff. Wow. Yeah. Nice. I remember one time walking, uh, we were renovating a house and I walked out on the porch and my, one of the guys, one of the contractors that worked there, I remember his name was Wayne. He was an old black guy. And there were two guys in the middle of the street. Like one guy was trying to stab the other guy. Yeah. But, and they're just, you know, and the other guy's not running away. Like he's staying, you know, 15, 20 feet away. And the other guy'd run at him and he'd kind of run and dodge out of the way. And then he'd stop for a minute. He they're screaming at each other. And, and I was like, what's going on, bro? Like I, I go, I go, should I? And so I told Wayne, I was like, man, I think that guy's, that guy's got a knife. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, should I call nine one one? And he goes, nah, he said, that's like, he knew both of them. That dude <laughs> sleeping with that guy's wife. It's been going on forever. They're not, he's not going to hurt him. They're just screaming. It's fine. And they did, they, they set, did this for 10, maybe for five minutes, five or yeah. 10 minutes, yelling, swinging at him and running at him real quick to try and get to him. And he couldn't get to him. And, you know, and then they just got tired and wandered off. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> nice. Like, what are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. I mean, like you were saying, uh, like, oh, they, they know these guys. They're, they're just playing. They're messing around, whatever like that. And uh, that actually made me think of another call that we uh, I actually, when we first started, uh, when I first started. Uh, we actually had a uh, a program where we had to go on police ride-alongs at least once per year. And I was on a ride-along with uh, this officers over in uh, North Nashville, which is Germantown area, that that area. Right. And um, we got a call from this uh, people that said, oh, these two guys are, they were in a fight in the middle of the street. And they said, oh, I think one of them probably needs an ambulance. Didn't go into detail about what it was. And we get out there, the ambulance, there's another officer already there. The ambulance is already there. They got one dude sitting on the, the back of the ambulance, like the steps of the ambulance. They just sitting there talking, describing what happened. 
And he's like, yeah, it was just me and a buddy. And this dude, he was a big dude. He was, he was probably four or 500 pounds. Like he, he was like really overweight and he was just talking just like I am right now. And, uh, he's like, yeah, I mean, uh, it was just a buddy of mine. We were just play fighting and we were just kind of wrestling around and, you know, it wasn't anything big. And then I looked down and like his foot was literally off of his leg, but being, it was held on by a piece of skin about that wide. It was just dangling off of his leg and he was high as shit on something because like I said, he, he wasn't feeling any pain. He was just talking like I am right now, even with his leg, his foot hanging off of his leg. And apparently I guess what happened was like when they were wrestling, just play fighting, the dude stomped his ankle and it broke compound fracture and it knocked his foot off. So he, I mean, he had no clue. No, I, he knew what happened. I mean, he, he looked down, but there was like, he, you would think somebody like that, they'd be screaming in pain or passed out. Like just, right. You no, know, he was, he was high as shit on something. And like, he, he was feeling no pain at all. I why didn't they take him? Why, if the ambulance was there, why was it in the, in the ambulance on his way to the hospital? Well, they were, uh, they were still getting, trying to get him squared away and they were taking vitals and stuff like that. Oh, okay. They were like, just kind of your basic normal stuff before you would go to the hospital. But he was like sitting there and, uh, mm. like, uh, one of the things that with, uh, breaks like that, you know, you, you have like the type of break that would, um, as far as veins go, you either rip mm. or they, they slice, you know, and apparently some of them, when they're cut the, the right way, they'll just keep bleeding. It doesn't stop that easy. But if they're like ripped apart, sometimes they'll they'll pull back in and it'll stop the bleeding. And, uh, you know, like he was barely bleeding from it. It was just kind of a stump that was there. It was bloody, but. Oh, it's it, horrible. Yeah. I just, I can't even imagine. Like after his high came down, I'm sure he was, he was pretty fucked up after that. So uh, it was bad. <laughs> How, how did you get into, or how did you become a, a dispatcher anyway? Actually, when I was uh, just a long time ago, that's been 23 years ago, I was a tuxedo salesman, believe it or not. Uh, I start, started out, like I worked at a tuxedo shop, and it was a, uh, they also did costumes, so it was like real busy around Halloween and stuff like that. And uh, I actually had a, a trip scheduled to go to Scotland, and, you know, everything was paid for. I was 20 years old back then, and um, actually I was, yeah, I was 20. I had to think about it for a second, but the, uh, the manager that I had there, they actually had somebody quit. And then seriously, like four or five days before my trip, they said, oh, we're going to have to cancel your vacation days. And I mean, it was just, you know, kind of a shock to me. I was like, I've already paid for the tickets and like hotels, everything's already paid for. And it was you know pretty expensive for me back then, especially when I was making, I think, I don't know, it was like eight or $9 an hour. So, um, you know, I was just like, uh, I'll just find something when I get back. I, I quit. And then when I got back, my dad is actually a, he was a uh, sheriff's deputy here in Nashville. But even though it's done a little bit differently in Nashville, most sheriff's departments, they cover the county and they do everything that police does. But in Nashville, we have a little different system where the sheriff's office, they actually just run the jails and they serve civil warrants and things like that. So he was a jail guard at that point, And he knew somebody in human resources and said, hey, they're looking for 911 dispatcher. So you know, I think you might actually have a good temperament for the job and everything. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot, see what happens and jumped in and, uh, you know, a lot of training that goes along with it. And, um, you know, it just kind of worked out 23 years later, I'm still there. What kind of trade, like how long does that take? No, it's, it's actually pretty extensive. Most people uh, wouldn't think of it like this, but, um, when you first get in, in your class, after you get past all the the hiring process, which is tedious as hell. I mean, anybody that's 
been interviewed uh, and uh, possibly taken on for a role in any type of first responder type thing can tell you about this. It's, you know, you have like a 20 plus page application. They want to know everything about you. They want to know every little piece of your past, every school, your residence for the past 10, 20 years, something like that. Right. Just a little bit of everything. And then once you actually get past all that, it's, you have a few tests for me, it was just a typing test. And then you have a polygraph and a psych test, things like that. But once you get past all those little tests, you get into your in-class training once you're hired. And that can last around six weeks where you learn how to use the computer system. You learn kind of a basic knowledge of the the laws. I mean, very, very basic how to take. And actually, when I was hired, I was hired as a police only dispatcher. So when you now, most centers, no, most centers, a lot of the centers we have, they're combined where they do police, fire and medical. Mine's that now. But back then it was police only. So. You do that for six weeks, and then after that, each one of your months that you're first on for your first three months, you go to a different shift, and you have a trainer sitting with you making sure you're doing everything right and trying to correct you and help you along. And then after that, there's another two-week training to actually do the police radio and then another three-month rotation. So you're after everything's said and done, you're close to a year um, after you've trained and had a little bit of free time in between uh, before you're actually released completely on your own. It's basically like repetitive calls, right? Yeah. yeah right? I mean, that's a lot of calls. I mean, um, most people think like the police will go out to, you know, anywhere from four or five, maybe if they're really busy, 10 incidents in a day. That's like, I mean, I'll answer that many calls in probably 15 or 20 minutes. So, I mean, it's uh, hundreds of calls a day that I'm either answering on the phone or dealing with on the actual police dispatch radio. And I think at the time I've been there, I've done kind of rust, rough estimate. I think I've probably done somewhere around a million calls. What is the what is the ma- the major call that you get? What's the the majority of the calls? Is it like mean, domestic violence? No, or? actually, it, it's more things like fraud and theft. It's things that you'd never see on the news. You never hear about. It's you know someone who got their car broken into, or someone who, I mean, we get a lot of wrecks. You know, non injury wrecks. Uh, things that you know not very noteworthy they're in the big scheme of things kind of boring it's uh it's just kind of a routine type thing i mean we'd get 100 plus wrecks in a single day i dispatch out of nashville so it's a you know bigger city but it's not a uh a huge city by any means and but even with that we get anywhere from 100 to 200 wrecks with no injuries every single day it doesn't matter if it's sunny or if it's raining outside we're always getting those you know how many how many dispatchers are there uh, in Nashville, we employ, I think it's around 180, um, but it's, but that's split up too. That's, uh, that's with all our support staff and managers and things like that. We've got a, you know, pretty big tech department. So it's um, on a shift every single day we'd have, like on my shift, for instance, we might have around 25 people working. Right. Yeah. I was going to I was just thinking it's like eight hours. It's three, eight hour shifts, right? Yeah, exactly. Some, uh, some centers, they do different ones where they do, you know, 12 hour shifts or, I've even seen, I don't even know how they do this. They try to mirror a fire department where they work for 24 hours straight and they'll have two days off. And right. I can't imagine doing something like that with dispatch with fire department. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you, in between calls, you're sitting down and resting. You can sleep at night, but with dispatch, you, you would be awake for 24 hours straight. Can you imagine how many, how many nine one one dispatchers there are in New York? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I think it's somewhere like, um, 
I don't know, like 1500, 2000, something like that all together. And they, they're split up in different, uh, different areas. So, I mean, like, like my building, we've got just, it's, it's a decent sized building, but we've got two floors. Uh, most of our people taking the phone calls, they're upstairs and the radio dispatchers are downstairs, but I've seen a picture of inside of one of their centers and it's just massive. I mean, it's crazy. The, the size it looks like a home place. depot. Yeah. It's about like that. And then the whole place is computers. Like all you see is complete com- computer screens. So on your, I'm just thinking about your, your podcast. Yeah. What do you go over on the podcast? So I'll go out and I, I find actual real 911 calls. I'll play, you know, anywhere from uh, one to three, what I call incidents, because some of them have more than one call per incident. And uh, I'll play the actual real 911 call, kind of dig into what happened during the call. And from there, I'll, kind of critique the dispatcher sometimes. I mean, if they do a good job, bad job, uh, most of the time it's, it's fine. I mean, dispatchers in general do a pretty good job, even though sometimes the public don't understand that, you know, they, they want a dispatcher that gets excited along with them. And, and that's just not the way that's not the best way to do it. Right. So, so, okay. so you would follow, would you, so you would follow up on a, on a call like that with the guy setting the house on fire. Do you follow up and figure out what, find out what happened? Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to find as much as I can. And most of the calls that I uh, play on my show, they're not mine. Uh, right. they're, you know, other places, other agencies, uh, you, you'd be kind of amazed that like all the true crime podcasts and stuff like that. I mean, there's, if you uh, knew, have the knowledge of nine one one calls, there are about 280 million nine one one calls placed every year in America. So you think about it, almost every person dials nine one one at least once per year. That's kind of how it is. And there may be what, I don't know, maybe a hundred newsworthy, like national newsworthy, true crime type incidents that happen. So that like the, the frequency of something like that, just so minor, you know, the, the big incidents that, you know, I kind of helped out with. And the time I've been there were, we had a really huge flood in 2010. We had the uh, tornado that happened in 2020, the Nashville bombing that happened in 2020. And then just recently, um, we had the Covenant School uh, shooter, the active shooter there. And I've dealt with some other active shooters and things like that along the way, but they were smaller in uh, comparison to all the other incidents. Okay. So what, what are, what's another one that you've, you've done? You've been, uh, so like out of, out of those I mean, 23 um, years, there have to be some good ones. Yeah. And that, like I, mean, I said, that, I mean, I, the fire one's a good one, but yeah. Yeah. So like, um, well, I'm I'm curious about your podcast. You, you've been doing it or what? Like, how did you, how did you, did you come up with the I, idea yourself or were you, did you start it yourself? Yeah. I, uh, for the podcast part, um, I had no experience, like z- literally zero experience at all with anything podcast. I may have listened to an episode of one podcast one time. Right. And I, I thought it was, oh, it's just, you know, this is not even like really a thing, but, uh, uh, you know, a friend of mine, uh, they, well, a couple of friends, they were like, oh, you should write a book, you know, because you've had so many experiences. I was like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. They're like, oh, you should do podcasts. You know, you got like a decent voice and stuff. I was like, I'll, I'll see about it. And uh, me and actually a buddy of mine, the, the guy that uh, took the call about the house on fire, right. um, he was he was retired at that point. And like I said, he'd been on the job for 40 years. And we just started out kind of like a we didn't really know what to do with it. And we just kind of had like a buddy type show where it was like, you know, we we're talking about calls from the day or, you know, we'd have 
cops on the show and just kind of talking about experiences we had or whatever like that. And, um, right. but then, you know, this guy, he's, he's in his sixties and he's, you know, fully retired and everything. And he didn't understand how much effort it took to actually do this. It's like, we would be there, you know, recording probably six, seven hours sometimes. And then the edits and stuff. And he lived in a different city. And back then there was no good way to do any type of remote stuff. And he was old, not very tech savvy. So I, I don't know if I could have got him set up remote anyway, but you know, it was just a little bit too much for him. And then he just wanted to retire. So I was like, all right, I got to figure out a way to do this on my own. And it's kind of more than what I do now. So it's more of a, it's kind of a both educational and entertaining type show where people who want their true crime fix, they can get it, but also be taught a little bit about what to do, what not to do when calling 911, what to expect from police once they get it, get there and, you know, just things like that. So, and it's worked out pretty well. Right. How, how much do you work on it per week? Uh, any, anywhere from like, uh, uh, I can get a quick episode. I call it a quick episode. I might be able to get one of those done, all the calls and research and then recording editing. I might be able to get one of those done in about 10 hours. Um, and that's for a half hour episode. Um, so 10 and, hours for half hour and you're working 40 hours a week. Yeah. And sometimes it'll be, you know, 20 or 30 hours if I'm doing a, a little bit longer ep- episode or if there's a lot more research involved or whatever. And I'm always trying to plan for the next week, even though i most of the time I'm kind of up against the deadline. So, I mean, for my own deadline, I set my own deadlines, but, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of work for it. And I do every bit of it myself. I, um, I do all the recording, all the setup, all the promotion, um, edits, anything like that. So, and I've just recently got a YouTube channel, which, uh, it, right now I don't have uh, very much actual video. It's like audiogram type stuff where I'm putting up the episodes I'm doing on there. And I've put a couple of interviews on there too, but, um, it's just started out. I've had it for a few months now and I'm still kind of learning that. I mean, I, I know you've got kind of a better grasp on that. You've done a ton of videos, I believe. So, uh, well, right I'm not- now I'm just learning. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I have a video editor that works the the cameras when we do in person ones, yeah. and then this is this is pretty pretty easy. Yeah, you know, like I mean, you you can do some editing here, but you know, there's not a, there's not a, a ton that's that's necessary because it's only two feeds, and yeah. they're both being recorded. But Colby also does this. He does more with this than um, he used to. Like, I think initially we were just putting up exactly what you see right here, but yeah. now he's flipping back and forth to you and I. Um, and, and of course he does the thumbnails and he, he does, he does the bulk of, you know, the work on, on editing and thumbnails and posting and, and all of that. But yeah, initially, and yeah, I mean, he puts all our stuff on Spotify now. Yeah. But yeah, when you first have to start editing all of the video, it's daunting to figure yeah. out how to everything you uploading it and then putting it into whatever, you know, your whatever editing software you're using, you know, figuring out how to work that software. What what a pain. But once you get it down, it's 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 never really quick. Yeah, if if you're doing like that's a I know the podcast end of it, I don't know the video end of it, but if you're uh, only doing Spotify, you should put it out on all the other stuff too. Like Apple is the biggest. No, no, like, it distributes to all of them. Okay. So, you, so you, it used to be anchor, but anchor got bought by Spotify. Yeah. So okay, we're, I gotcha. so he still uploads it to, I think to anchor, but anchor is owned by Spotify and then it just distributes it everywhere. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Yeah. 
I know a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, some podcasts I've heard, they only do Spotify. I'm like, why would you even do that? You're missing out on so much more. I mean, they're only about a 20 or so percent market share as far as all podcasting goes. So, But I think when you do that, if you do like a Spotify, like exclusive or something, I think you might get paid a little bit more from Spotify. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. I mean, uh, Joe Rogan, he's Spotify only and he's, I mean, yeah, well, of course he's the biggest in the world. So, I mean, I think he's, what was his deal? Like 110 million or something like that. It's crazy. Yeah, it was excessive. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, so. they're making money hand over fist with that, with that show. So, I mean, um, I know that advertising opportunities on some of the bigger shows, like not even his, his size, like a 10th of his size, they're, they're pulling in probably like 50 to a hundred thousand dollars per ad. It's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. It's insane. I'd like yeah. to get a thousand dollars just for, if I could just get a sponsor for a thousand bucks a month, Yeah, you know, like even an extra thousand or 2000 a month would, would really be like a, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately a game changer, like, oh, that's, yeah. you know, yeah. like a thousand bucks is that, that's like, to me, a thousand extra dollars a month is a lot of money. Yeah. Same here. I mean, I, I'm trying to, you know, morph this into a full-time job, my podcast and, Right. Um, I've got kind of a number in my head where I need to do that, but you know, that's just, it seems like sometimes it seems like a pipe dream. Like, I, you know, it'll take me forever to reach that point. And, you know, I'm sure that at that point, if I had a full-time gig doing this, I could, you know, do the video stuff, like no problem at all. And, you know, do a bunch of other stuff and have time to really dig in deep and, and have a lot more research done on each episode and, you know, make longer episodes or whatever like that. And, but, yeah, it's uh, doing it with a forty-hour-a-week job. It's it's really difficult. Yeah, yeah, it it is hard. Um, okay, well, I feel good. I'm ready to go. <laughs> All, right. All right, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, try to get this done like some other time, and we'll uh, come back around. Maybe circle back around if I've got uh, you know something you know more in your wheelhouse to try to have you on my show too and we'll chat about that you know yeah hey i have a question yeah i mean definitely i have a question like the crime con thing what yeah. what was why'd you go to crime con well you you were a speaker right yeah yeah um did you have a booth yeah I, I had a table there on podcast row too but i was also a speaker i um that was, this is the second one i've been to and um it's i mean it's a great opportunity overall because you get to you know meet fans of the show and you know everybody's wanting to take pictures and you're handing out stuff to potential new listeners and stuff like that. And then for me with the, you know, the speaking gig, it's, it's like, um, you know, I got up on stage this time and did sort of the same thing I did last year. Uh, I essentially taught people how to really briefly take 911 calls. And then I had volunteers from the audience come up and, you know, I had scripted actors backstage where they, um, you know, they were the, the callers essentially, and they would call in and everybody would listen. And it was a, big stress for people. And, uh, this, this year they did a little bit better than last year. Last year I had a actually fan of one of my, the fans of my show and you're up on stage. You can't really see these people out stage uh, out in the audience because the lights are so bright. And when I asked for, uh, volunteers, I just see hands go up and I'm like, all right, you, 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 and you, and you know, this, this person comes up and she sits down and they start talking and she completely freezes and just starts laughing she later on told me, she was like, that's how I deal with stress. I just start laughing. I can't stop. And she put her head down and she's there in front of probably a thousand people and not doing anything at all. She just completely froze. And that was like the, 
you know, at the time, like the, the most viewed video from CrimeCon. It was, it was pretty funny. <laughs> um, yeah. Then why raise your hand? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, why put yourself in that position? Yeah. You, you think uh, that's, that's kind of the thing with the, you know, 911 dispatchers in general. I think people that they really think they can do a job like that, but the turnover rate is, it's crazy. I mean, I've seen probably, I don't know, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 people come and go in the time that I've been there. And most of the time it's because they think that they can do the job and they just can't. It's, it's either too fast paced or they, you know, catch a real bad call. You know, they'll, they'll have to, you know, help somebody give CPR to like an infant or something like that. And that's just right. too much for them. And they, they're like, okay, I'm, I can't do this. I'll quit. So that's happened more than a few times. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's a, you know, a bad thing. It's like, you might be the last person that you, you know, you talk to somebody before they die sometimes. I mean, that, that, that happens or the CPR thing with kids. And that, that's one of the things with us. Like we, we really hate, uh, like myself and most others, like anytime you have something involving somebody who can't help themselves, like you, know, you get a couple of drug dealers out and they, they're in the game together. Like, I don't want anybody to commit violence against anybody, but them going in, they know there's an inherent risk in doing something like that. If it's a kid that gets hurt doing nothing at all, you know, right. we want to do everything we can to help them. We're going to help everybody. But like, those are the people we really care about, like the young kids, the elderly, you know, stuff like that. So right. yeah, it's, it'd be difficult like that sometimes. Well, you didn't help. You didn't leave it on a higher note. That just, that only made Actually, it work. Yeah, you, got, you got a point there. I didn't leave it on a higher note. <laughs> All right. Well, well, listen, right, I, I, I appreciate you coming on. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching the video. Do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Uh, please consider joining my Patreon and leave me a comment in the comment section and share the video. So thank you. And I will see you. Started. I found an area of Nashville that I liked where the houses were going for, I mean, they were just dirt cheap. They're going for, they're going for 40,000. If they were renovated, if a house was renovated, you could get it for 65 or $70,000. It was just that, that was how bad this area was. So I go in the area. I end up talking one owner into owner financing me the property. Her house was so bad. It was going for like she wanted like 19 grand or 15, 15, 16 grand, 19 grand. I forget. It was cheap. I have the, the exact numbers in, in my book. But I end up getting her to own her finance. I gave her like four or five, like three or $4,000 down and have her finance like something like 10 or $15,000. So then I find another guy who buys and sells houses. He flips houses. I buy, convince him to own her finance three houses. You have to understand, I convinced them to owner finance the house by saying, look, I'll give you 5% down or 10% down or 20% down. But I tell them, like, I don't want to buy your house. Like this one guy, his houses were renovated. They were all selling for about 65000 One was going for 75000 So I think it was like two were 65000 one was 75000 Regardless, I say, look, I'll, I need you to owner finance the, the houses. For him, I said, I need to close on all three houses on one, on one HUD statement. That way, all of the houses end up getting recorded for like $210,000 or something outrageous. Was that the one I did that with? No, that was another transaction. Anyway, for him, I, I, for the woman that I got to do it, 
I told her I wanted to record the sale of the home at like $150,000, even though I was buying it for like 20. So for let's say $150,000 and I wanted to, um, I wanted a construction credit on the house for like 130,000 and I would pay the doc stamps. So it gets recorded for $150,000. I paid the extra doc stamp. So in sa- the sale ends up showing up in public records as being a sale for $150,000. And I think it was like 152 or 154. It was roughly around there. The other three properties, I get this guy, I end up, I didn't do them all in one closing statement. I had each one, I added like a hundred and some odd thousand dollars to each sale. So one got, one was, came in at like 190,000, one came in at like 175 and the other ones came in at like 175. Well, I did, all of these houses were within about three or four blocks of each other. So what, obviously, if you've been watching, what that ended up doing was, I could now use that one property, you know, each house, I could use the other houses as comparable sales. I immediately refinance those houses and pull out like 100000 on this house, 120 on this one, 90000 on this house. So I, I refinance those houses. Now I'm flush with cash again. I have like 30, I mean, I'm sorry, 30. I have like 300, $350,000. So now I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. So I start buying more houses in the area because, you know, I don't have anything else to do and it's just what I do. So, and I need to get a few million. So I need to buy 20 or 30 properties. I figure I can refinance all those properties in multiple names. At this point, I'm starting to build additional credit profiles for additional synthetic identities. But I'm also dating. I end up meeting this girl named Amanda Gardner. So I, I meet Amanda and Amanda and I start dating and she she thinks I'm like this just super successful real estate guy. So I ended up buying a house in that same neighborhood where I was buying all the other houses. I buy this one this one house and I renovate it. I renovate it. It's super nice. I've got hardwood floors. It's really, really nice. And but I'm, I'm buying other houses too. I'm continuing to drive the value of this area up through the roof while I'm building other identities. I end up meeting Amanda. Amanda and I hit it off right away. I mean, what's not to hit out? What's not to like? I mean, she's she sees me. I've, I'm a decent looking guy. I've got a ton of money. She had just gotten out of the military. She had a son named Cameron. Uh, he was a cute little kid. Um, he... You know, he liked me. Amanda loved me. She moved in with me right away. I mean, right away, within weeks or months, she was living in my house. And keep in mind, too, she's she's broke. So I, I look like a savior to her. And I'm buying her whatever she wants. Uh, I got her and bought her a new car. She's got new clothes. Granted, we live in a shit in a shithole area, but we also I I also own at this point eight to ten houses in the area. I'm buying vacant lots. Within six months, I'm, I'm building brand new houses. And, and she, she quit her job. She's helping me now. So I, I remember one of the houses, like th- really, to be honest, this is funny. The, one of the first houses I refinanced, one of the first houses I, I, I refinanced. So going back a little bit, I, I remember I had bought these houses, just the first four houses I bought. Before I refinanced anything, bought the houses, recorded the value high. And what was so funny about that was um, I ended up 
um, I ended up putting these signs on the houses. I put these, I made these banners that said Nashville Restoration Project. So I made these banners and I stuck them on every one of the houses. I renovated the houses so they looked really good on the outside. Like they didn't look great inside. They look like crap. But I put these banners and the banners said, you know, Nashville Restoration Project, Nashville Restoration Project over and over again. And then along the side of it, it would have like NashvilleRestorationProject.com. And then I designed a website. I got a ton of before and after photos from properties. I took pictures of the entire neighborhood. I really dressed up the website. I mean, it looked great. I even used the same exact color scheme as as, uh, the city's future comp plan. So every city has a future comprehensive plan for what they want their city to look like in the future. And typically they work in conjunction with different developers. So I basically said I was one of those developers. The other thing I said on the website was that this area in Nashville was called J.C. Napier. That was the subdivision. That was the name of the area. And it was right next to the J.C. Napier projects. So the problem with that is that um, there was, the, there was obviously, this is right next to the project. So you can imagine the kind of area this is. So on my website, I specifically said that the projects were scheduled to come down within the next two years. They were currently vacating the, the projects. So if you went, if you looked up Nashville Restoration Project or you went to the website, you got all this information that said this entire area was being, was going through gentrification or being revitalized. The city was dumping a ton of money into it. Developers were coming in there. It was work. We were working in conjunction with the, with the future comp plan with the city and that the projects were coming down within the next year or two, 18 months to two years. So, uh, and, and there's a ton of photos of all these houses being renovated. Anyway, uh, what I ended up doing was I refinance one of the houses and I con- and when the appraiser comes out, I go to meet him at one of the houses. So I go out there and I said, so, uh, w- you know, we, we, he measures the whole house. I said, well, what do you think? And he looks at the house and he was a grumpy old guy and he kind of looked at the house and he goes, ah, you know, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's not too bad. And I said, what do you think it's going to come in? What do you think it's worth? And he goes, what did you pay for it? And I said, I paid like a hundred and I think I paid like $180,000 for it. And he looked at the house and he goes, you know, a year ago, I'd have said this thing was worth fifty or sixty thousand. I went, really? He said, yeah, but you know, since the he has since the uh, the Nashville Restoration Project has come in this area, he has this whole area is going up through the roof. There's comparable sales popping up all over the place. There's um, he has, there's he has, there's comparable sales popping up all over the place. Uh, it's he said the whole he said the 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 whole area is going up through the roof. He goes, I I'd say this this thing's worth at least 180, 185,000, whatever he ended up saying. And I just remember thinking, fuck, that's awesome. It was great because he bought it. He'd he'd obviously go, and I knew he went to the website because he told me he goes, you know, the projects are coming down. And I was like, really? And he goes, Yeah, he said the projects are coming down. And then I remember, I'll never forget, he said this. He said, you know. I said, Jace, I said, Nashville Restoration Project. I said, really? I said, and what is that anyway? And he goes, yeah, it's, a, it's one of these big developers. They work with the city. They come in and they revitalize an entire area. He said, you know, they did the same thing in Germantown about 10 years ago. 
I go, really? He goes, oh, yeah, Nashville Restoration Project went in there. They revitalized the entire area. You can't buy anything in Germantown now that's not worth less a million dollars. He goes, you hold on to this place. You're going to easily double your money in the next year or two. I was like, wow, thanks. Like, he totally added that whole thing. Like, that wasn't anything I said. I didn't know about Germantown. I didn't know anything even about the area. He threw that in there. So... That house, that's one of the first houses I refinanced, which I always thought was hilarious because what I did was I went into that area, bought up all those houses and put signs on every single house that said Nashville Restoration Project. And then, of course, I kept recording the value of these houses higher and higher. So within a couple of within a year, these things are everywhere. There's 20 properties that are worth over two hundred thousand dollars. I can refinance these things anytime and get two or $3 million easily. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the video. And if you're interested in buying a painting from me, my contact information is in the description box. Back to the video. So I'm dating Amanda. Everything's going good. Um, I've built up several synthetic identities and we'd been dating about a year and the relationship was going great. Uh, we start seeing, so this is what's comical. One of the chicks that I had gone on a date with was a chick named uh, Trina. I went on a date with Trina and we went out one time and I just wasn't interested. She had like, typically I like a Southern accent, but she had this really, really bad, almost like a Kentucky Southern accent, which is way different than a Florida or Georgia Southern accent, which to me, I find sexy. Trina's was not sexy. And so we went out, we went to, uh, I remember when we went to go see the movie, The Dukes of Hazards, which she wanted to go see. So we went to go see it. And afterwards, like I didn't even try and kiss her or anything. I just wanted to get out of there. I wasn't interested. I got my car and left. Well, Amanda and I were dating. And at one point, Amanda says to me, you know, you know, at, you know how it is. You, you're sleeping with a chick and you've been sleeping with her for a while and uh, six months or something. And, and she, Amanda ended up saying, have you ever thought about being with another woman? You know, me and another woman. And I was like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I would be willing to do that, you know, out of love for you. Um, so she says, well, I would be interested. And so Amanda, you know, Amanda starts looking. Amanda starts looking on the website um, shit, it's called uh, match.com. She starts looking for other women. So she comes across Tr uh, Trina. And I remember looking at Trina's profile and being like, holy shit, I went out with that girl. And she's, no, you didn't. I said, I swear to God, I went out with her. I said, flip through her pictures. There's a picture of her leaning against a Corvette and another one where she's running a marathon. Sure enough, that was her. And I was like, I went out with her. She goes, what happened? I told her, I kind of blew her off. She sent me a couple of emails at, or a couple of, text messages afterward and I just never responded so Amanda hits her up asks her if she wants to meet they go to a lesbian bar because it turns out that Trina was was gay they go to a lesbian bar Amanda and her end up making out in a car in the car she mentions me asks if she would be interested in all of us getting together Trina says yes we all end up going to dinner Trina comes back home. You can imagine what happens. So what ends up happening is we all we all start to hang out together, right? Like we're going to festivals. We're going to movies. Trina's coming over every once in a while. Like things are good. Life is good. 
Uh, I've got tons of money. We're building new houses. We're renovating houses. And everything is going good. Well, then one day, Amanda ends up going online. Well, okay, that's not how it happened. So here's what happened is at one point, Amanda ends up finding, I had a corporate lawyer that had incorporated all of these several uh, corporations because obviously I can't just dump all this money in my account. You have to kind of launder it through different accounts. So, and and those accounts actually were in Amanda's name. So what ends up happening is I, the corporate lawyer contacted me one day and asked me to send her something. I sent it to her, never heard, or, you know, she never got it for some reason. So she called back and she called Amanda and said, hey, I never got this document. So I told Amanda, go on my computer and look in Word. Here's the name of the document. Well, when Amanda did that, she ended up seeing, a, finding a letter that I had, the letter that I had written to my parents the day I left Tampa, two years earlier, two and a half years earlier. She finds that letter. She reads the letter. She looks up who Matt Cox is. She sees a tons of, ton of articles. She spends a whole day reading articles. By the time I get home that night, I walk in. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. She says nothing. I end up going on my computer. And when I go to do, to close out all of the programs, I see that Word is open. When I go to click on Word to close it, I see the last thing that had been open was the letter to my parents. And obviously, I hadn't opened it in a year and a half, two, in like two years. So, I was, I realized, holy shit, she read it. So, then I go and I look at my history and boom, there's nothing but all these articles on Matt Cox, Matt Cox, Matt Cox, Matt Cox. I wanted, wanted, wanted. So, I, I go in and I said, Jesus, God Almighty, I said, did you, what did you do? And she was like, and she, she immediately realizes that I know she breaks down. She starts crying. She says, I'm sorry. I had no idea. I, I didn't mean to. I said, well, I have to leave. So I can't stay here if you know who I am. If anybody knows who I am, like it's dangerous for me. She begs and pleads and cries and says, please don't leave. Please don't leave. I'll never, I, I'll never tell anybody. I'll never tell anybody. And the truth is I was like totally in love with this chick. I thought she was amazing. She was great. So I stayed. So she knows my name, true name is Matt Cox, not Carter, not Joseph Carter, which is bad for me. Um, we end up seeing Trina. Everything's going good. One day, Amanda goes online. She was checking on Google. Just randomly, she would check my name. So she checks my name and she sees something on Dateline. Turns out that Dateline was was about to do an article on me. I'm sorry, an article. Dateline was about to do a news program on me. At, at this point, I've already been in Bloomberg Magazine has already done two articles. One about just about me. And two, the second article was when they caught Becky because they had caught Becky at this point. Then I had been in Fortune Magazine had done an article on me like a 6,000 word article, horrible. Uh, then, so, so then she went online and she found this article about, not to mention all the St. Pete Times articles, all the Chicago Tribune, all the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. There was just one article after another. So she finds this thing about Dateline and there's a blog about Dateline, how they're interviewing people that, have, that knew me or that know me. 
and they're going to do a one hour episode on me. So I now know I'm going to be on Dateline. That's not good. Like local newspapers aren't a big deal. Even a national magazine or two, like the kind of people that I hang, first of all, I don't have a big circle of friends. The kind of people that know me or that I associate with aren't reading Fortune magazine. These are con- contractors. Like I'm not concerned about them stumbling across my photo in Fortune or Bloomberg. But this is Dateline. It's a tabloid. And your average blue collar worker watches Dateline. Dateline, I don't even know if it's still out, but so I realize I'm going to be in in living rooms everywhere. And somebody's going to recognize me. I'm somebody working at Starbucks or working at Home Depot is going to say, holy shit, that guy comes in here all the time. They're going to catch me. Like, it's a problem. So Amanda tells me about it. And I go, Jesus, oh, my God, this is this is really bad. I can't stay in the United States anymore. So she and I decide we've got a month or two, about two months, a couple months before it comes out. We decide we're going to refinance all the houses, pull out a few million dollars and leave the United States. And at this point, we started researching where to go. We figure we're going to go to uh, to Australia. And it, the nice thing about Australia was Australia would allow you to go to Australia. If you had a, okay, you, if you showed up in, in Australia with like $200,000 and a business plan to open a business in Australia, you could go there and you could be a permanent resident alien. They would give you a driver's license. They'd allow you to buy property. They would allow you to stay in their country and open a business. You could not go to Australia and get a job, but you could go there and open a, a business and hire Aussies. So I can't go there and become a citizen because if you were to go and become a citizen, they wanted you to do a background check. But I could go there and become a with U.S. documents, if I showed up with my U.S. passport, I could become a permanent resident alien. And keep in mind, I'm I'm living as a homeless person. I can easily become a permanent resident alien in Australia, and he'll never be notified. And then if he dies someday, they're not going to turn around and notify Australia that I died. So we decide we're going to Australia. A man has researched the whole thing. I start refinancing properties. I start pulling out cash. As we're pulling out cash, we start asking people like my general contractor. His name was Tracy. I ask him, hey, can would you do me a favor and could you cash some checks for me? And I, he's like, yeah, sure. So I have him cash a check for like $8,000, then another check for $6,000, another check for $9,000. Then I have another guy that we worked with cash a check for $4,000, $3,000, $9,000. And I have... so. Amanda ends up giving Trina a check uh, of several checks and asks her to asks her to to cash those checks. I remember Amanda and I had gone. We had a couple of friends. Uh, one was Brittany, another chick that I had dated, and her new boyfriend, which they had just gotten married. His name uh, his name was Brian. So Brian and Brittany, we went with them on their honeymoon to to Venice, to Italy. We went there for like 10 days. We did a 10-day trip. So we were gone for two, three weeks. We left and we went to Croatia. We went to Greece. Like we hung out. We went on this cruise, European cruise. And I remember we'd come back 
And as soon as we came back, we hadn't been home more than a few weeks when we started asking everybody to cash checks to start pulling out money. So we're pulling out money. And we had pulled out a few hundred thousand dollars. One day I'm at home and suddenly I hear this, bam, somebody had kicked in the front door. And it was like, oh my God. And I had, I had cameras all over my house. I had cameras in the living room, dining room, outside the house. But I would go to walk out to see what happened. Because I remember it was so loud. I remember thinking maybe the TV had fallen. Like the we had a big flat screen TV. And I thought maybe Cameron had pulled the, knocked the TV over some, I don't know. But as soon as I walked, started walking out of the, the bedroom, this fucking guy, these two black guys had kicked in the front door, comes running in and he sticks a gun in my face and he goes, get on the ground, get on the ground. So I go, oh Jesus. So I get on the ground. They lead Amanda in the room. She gets on the ground. Cameron gets on the ground. They throw a blanket over us. They rob the whole house. They grab some, I, I, I mean, literally, I'm like, bro, what do you want? You know, they're, they're, they're like, shut up, shut up. I'm like, what do you want? And they said, you know, where's the money? Where's the money? I said, bro, there's money here. Like I told them where there's some money here. There's some money here. We had some money in the refrigerator or in the freezer. I didn't say that. I told them to get the money out of that. They, we had a, a, a gun safe, which was Amanda's gun. And they grabbed the gun safe. They grabbed our Rolexes. They grabbed a couple of, uh, Cartier watches and stuff and some jewelry. And then they grabbed, oh, they grabbed the keys to, I think, Amanda's truck. And they jumped in her truck and took off. Hey, sorry for interrupting the video, but want to let you guys know that if you join my Patreon at the top tier every single month, you get a different painting. And the contact information for my Patreon page is in the description. Back to the video. No, do they take my truck? I don't know, they stole one of our vehicles. So we immediately sit up and uh, as soon as they're gone, we call the police. Police show up and the guy, the cop's like, I'm like, hey, I got a video of it. But they had ski masks on. Um, so the cop comes and he's, I remember he told me, look, you need to, to find another place to live. You you can't, you, you, you guys can't stay here. Like you can't stay in this neighborhood. You know, I said, I, I told him I own like 20 houses in the neighborhood. I own another five or six lots. We're building new houses. He's, I don't care. He goes, what these guys didn't steal this time, they'll just come back and steal. So I said, okay. So we ended up going to a hotel. Well, I didn't, they had taken my, my wallet. So I didn't have my driver's license or my, they took my, a bunch of stuff. I didn't have anything in my name. So they took all my stuff. All I had was, a passport in the name Walter Holcomb. So they took my Joseph Carter stuff. So I got a passport as Walter Holcomb and a driver's license in Walter Holcomb's name. So when we go and we check into a hotel, we were there maybe a day or two. We didn't go back to the house. We were, gonna, we were just going to buy a new house and stay in the hotel. It was a really nice hotel. So we stay in the hotel. And while that's happening, Trina is calling because they took our cell phones. So we get our new cell phones back. And I remember Trina, as soon as I got it back and mine was back on, like we got a phone call. I, I got a phone call from Trina and she was like, oh my God, what have you, where have you guys been? What are you doing? What's going on? Where's Amanda? What's happening? I said, Trina, calm down. I said, look, we had a home invasion and we're staying in a hotel. And, and I said, uh, she goes, what hotel? 
And I went, I remember thinking, what? Like, she didn't say like, are you okay? How's it? Oh my God, that's horrible. She goes, what hotel are you at? And I was like, I'm, I'm at the, whatever hotel it was. I just told her the name of the hotel. I forget like the, fuck, I don't remember what it was, uh, the Westing or something. So I tell her, yeah, it was this hotel. And she goes, okay, well tell Amanda to call me because Amanda was in the shower. I go, okay, no problem. So I hang up the phone. Uh, what had happened was a couple days earlier, Trina had called the Secret Service and turned us in. And the Secret Service had gone to my old ha- my house where we weren't staying and had staked out the house for the like the day at, the day we left that night. The next day they showed up and started staking out the house. So they've been staking it out for two days and we weren't there. So she was calling to try and find out where we were. So she called the Secret Service back. She said, this is where they are. They sent, Secret Service sent a team, sent themselves and the marshals went to the hotel where we were and they asked, is Joseph Carter staying here? And they said, no, because I wasn't. I was staying there as Walter Holcomb. So then Trina calls back and says, I called the hotel. You're not, you're not there. And I was like, it was weird. I was like, What? And at that point, I wasn't at the hotel. I, I was at the at our office. We had rented like a, a 10,000 square foot warehouse. And I said, look, I'm not there. I'm, she goes, are you there now? I said, no, I'm at the warehouse. Amanda was dropping off her son. And she goes, well, okay, so you're there now. Is Amanda with you? And I went, no, Amanda's dropping off Cameron. And she goes, okay, uh, I got to go. And she hangs up the phone. Like a couple minutes later, Amanda calls me and I go, hey, what's up? She goes, Trina just called me. She goes, and I go, okay, well, what's going on? She goes, I don't know, Matt, I'm worried. I said, not Matt. She said, uh, uh, Carter. She goes, I don't know, Carter, I'm worried. And I said, why? And she goes, I'm worried because she is, it, she, she said some stuff. Like she told me how much she loves me and cares about me. And she goes, it was just weird. And I go, she goes, I'm, I'm concerned. I go, what are you concerned about? I go, if she doesn't know anything, what are you worried about? And she goes, oh, God, Matt, I'm so sorry. And by this point, I'm, I'm concerned because by this point, I got a phone call from the local police and the local police asked me if I could meet them, if I could meet them at the house. So I'm, dri- I'm now driving to the house because they wanted me to meet them at the house because they said they wanted the video of the home invasion. So I'm driving to the house. And when Amanda called and she's, and I'm getting in the car, I'm driving and I'm like, yeah, well, what are you worried about? And she goes, oh my God, man, I'm so sorry. I'm worried. I'm worried. I go, what, what are you worried about? So at that point I had just pulled up to the house because our, our place was only a couple blocks away, our office. So I pull up to the house and I'm like, well, if you're not worried, I mean, if, if you're worried, you must be worried about something. What are you worried about? If she doesn't know anything, there's no reason to be worried. And she's like, I, you know, she didn't want to tell me what had happened. But she goes, I think I might have fucked up. And I go, how did you fuck up? What are you, what are you trying to say? Like, what is going on? And by this point, I'm getting out of my car, walking to the front to my house. And a black SUV pulls up, another SUV pulls up, another car pulls up, another one pulls up. And they all lock up their brakes. And I'm standing there in the middle of the street, holding my cell phone, when the Secret Service jumps out of their vehicles screaming, get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground. And obviously at that point, I realized what the issue is. Amanda, I I later found out, Amanda had told Trina who I was and Trina had called the Secret Service and turned me in. 
And when um, Trina called Amanda, she was basically just making sure that she wasn't with me, that she wanted her to know how much she loved her and cared about her and was trying to kind of distance herself from the situation. And I, uh, I ended up getting arrested. So Secret Service runs up to me and I remember, you know, I remember at first I thought I was getting robbed again until I saw the secret. They have these white, they're, they're all in black. But they have these white things that say Secret Service on them. So was Secret Service was there and uh, they throw me on the ground. They're like, get on the ground, get on the ground. And I was just like numbed. I get on the ground. They handcuffed me, pulled me off, pulled me up, dust me off. And I remember they're holding me and I'm just standing there. They're like, Matt Cox, are you Matt Cox? Mr. Cox. And I'm just staring at him and I'm not saying anything. And the guy looks at, he has a clipboard with my wanted poster on it and he holds it up and he's looking and another officer comes up. And I remember he looked at me and he goes, is that him? Is it him? He goes, no, I don't think it. He's, oh shit, I don't think it's him, bro. And he looks at me and he goes, no, it's him. It's him. He goes, look at his eyes. It's him. And he looks at me and he goes, hey, Mr. Cox, he goes, we've been looking for you. And, I, and he goes, you are Mr. Cox. You are Matthew Cox, right? And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm Matt Cox. I mean, at that point, I, you know, I'm done, right? That officer told me, that agent told me when they had arrested, when they arrested Becky, Rebecca Halk, when they arrested her in Houston six months earlier, they said she didn't admit who she was until they put her hand on the scanner. They said she complained the whole 30-minute drive back to – they arrested her, by the way. They arrested her at school. They arrested her, and they brought her all the way back to the Secret Service's office. And she – the whole time she was there being driven there, she goes, you guys fucked up. You're going to lose your job. I'm going to sue. You've embarrassed me. She said, they said, he goes, she didn't break until we put her hand on the scanner. And she goes, okay, I'm, I'm Rebecca Halk. So I broke immediately. Yeah, you got me. Yes, I know I'm done. So they bring me back. They handcuff me to a table. I wait. They fly the Secret Service agent from Atlanta and she flies in. I'm there for hours. And uh, they come in and they read me, you know, they, of course they read you your rights. They tell you what you're charged with. And they say, we're going to bring you back to uh, Atlanta. And uh, they brought me back to Atlanta and I went all the way back to Atlanta. And that was an ordeal. And what's funny is when they called Amanda, this was weird. Like Amanda, when she found out that they had caught me, she immediately drove to the bank, went to our safety deposit box. First of all, there was cash in the box. So she doesn't pull out. She pulls out the cash, but she pulls out the passports. She keeps all the cash in the ice box and she keeps the cash in the, in the, um, safety deposit box. She grabs all the fake passports that I had and driver's licenses and she brings those to the Secret Service's office and she gives them to them immediately and says, I just found these. I don't know anything. I was completely duped and don't have a clue about what who this person is. I thought his name was Joseph Carter. And she gives them all my driver's licenses and IDs and everything. She later tells them that she did know who I was, 
but she didn't think it was a big deal. Like she, like she waits till she gets a lawyer. When she gets a lawyer, she goes in and she cooperates and she tells him who I was and what I was doing, but she had nothing to do with it. She didn't really know what was going on and it was all me and, you know, which is fine because it was pretty much all me. Um, anyway, yeah, I go back to, uh, I go back to Atlanta and I get a lawyer and I fly on Con Air, which is nothing like Con Air in the movie. And uh, it takes about a month, month and a half to get me all the way back to Atlanta because they bring you from one prison. They bring you one county jail where or U.S. Marshals holdover where they hold you for two weeks and they hold you here for a week. Then they hold you here for two weeks and they hold you here for five days. And so you keep getting bussed from one place to another till you're eventually flown back to Atlanta. And I was flown back to Atlanta and I was held in the uh, I was held in uh, Atlanta in two different jails. And uh, I get my attorney and I remember when I got my attorney, she told me I was looking at a, a bunch of time. She didn't really know how much time, but she said, you're looking at like 15, 20 years. She didn't really know. She said that I was responsible for like 25 or $26 million in loss. The Secret Service was saying something like $40 million, 40 or $50 million in, in uh, fraud at my mortgage company. And the numbers were all over the place. And uh, yeah. So I end up taking a, a plea. I end up pleading to 26 years. And I end up getting sentenced to 26 years in prison. And yeah, that uh, I get a, a PSI for 26. Uh, actually, my, my pre-sentence report said uh, 34 years or 30. Yeah, 30, 32 years. 32 years of life is what my pre-sentence report said when it eventually came out. I was interviewed by the Secret Service and the FBI. Uh, I mean, I was trying to help myself. I cooperated fully, told them everything I could think of that by this point, they'd already indicted me in in Atlanta, in Tampa, and in uh, in Nashville. Uh, 